Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 20. Psalm chapter 20. This is a safe place to learn how to read the Bible if you're new to it. And if you don't have a copy, you're more than welcome to use your mobile device. Just pull it out, punch in Psalm 20 ESV. Or you're welcome to grab a copy from the lobby, whatever you prefer. A safe place for those that are new to the Bible. All right, I have good news for you. Okay, good news for you. And no, this isn't some gospel joke. Uh, I have good news for you. We're extending our summer psalm series by one week. Today was supposed to be the last Sunday, but now we're extending it through next Sunday. It's no longer the summer psalms, though. I think it's fall psalms, but you can try to say that five times fast. We're into the fall psalms, and uh, I, I'm never sad to no spend another Sunday in the psalms. Listen, there's so much to appreciate about these ancient hymns. Personally, I love that the psalms are specific enough to address a variety of different kinds of, of experiences and emotions, but at the same time, they're broad enough that each of us, everyone seated here, can see ourselves and our lives in each psalm. When we, when we study the psalms, I hope you detect this, when we study the psalms, we get to see God's wisdom and his care. His wisdom and how he designed them and his care and how he designed them for us. How he authored them for us. These, these psalms are truly divine in every sense of the word. So let's turn our attention there now. Psalm chapter 20, all nine verses. I'll read and then pray. Psalm 20. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Verse 4. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Verse 6. Now, I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we... We trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O oh Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. The very words of God, please join me in a brief prayer that he would help us understand them. Lord, you have spoken, and we are listening. Your words can accomplish things in our lives that nothing else can accomplish. And so, Lord, I ask now that Psalm chapter 20 would have your intended effect upon us. For those who feel weary and overwhelmed, I, I pray, Lord, that they would walk out of here feeling confident and secure. 
for those who feel distracted and pulled in a bunch of different directions, I pray, Lord, that you would get their attention firmly fixed on you. And Lord, above all, I pray that your son Jesus would be magnified in our hearts and glorified by our lives. Do these things, Lord, through the preaching of your word, for the glory of your good name, for the good of these dear people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were arrested and the police officer offered you that one phone call that movies have assured me you'd get, (laughs) who would you call? If you were arrested and got your one phone call, who would you call? I'll tell you who you would call. You would call someone who you trusted. You would call someone who, and this, this group of people is getting smaller, you would call somebody who actually answers their phone. You would call someone who had enough money to bail you out and who would actually shell out the money to bail you out. You would call someone who wouldn't unfairly judge you and leave you behind bars. You would call someone who was nearby and, and had a car and could actually drive and come help you. In short, in summary, you would call someone who could help you and would help you. <laughs> For who you call when you're in trouble reveals an awful lot about you and an awful lot about that person. Reveals who you know and trust. It, reve- it reveals the character of the person that you are calling. Who do you call upon when you're in trouble? Psalm 20 invites us to call upon the Lord when we are in trouble. Call upon the Lord. That's what this whole psalm is doing. It is people calling upon the Lord when they are in trouble. And so I have to ask, when things are difficult in your life, do you call upon the Lord? Do you call upon him regularly, more than once? Do you call upon him instinctively? Do you call upon him earnestly and passionately? God wants to persuade us to call on him when the going gets tough, but but why? Why should we call on him? Why call on him? This passage provides five reasons, five reasons that we should call upon the Lord in the day of trouble. These are our outline. I'll give them to you as we go. Why should we call upon the Lord when trouble arises? Reason number one, point number one, because he listens to us. He listens to us. As as I mentioned, the occasion for this passage is, quote, the day of trouble. That's what verse 1 sets out for us. May the Lord answer you when things are going great? No. May the Lord answer you when you're on vacation? No. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. This psalm was sung on the eve of a major battle. That's the setting for it, historical setting. The military references in verse 7 about chariots and horses, those really confirm that there's a military setting to this psalm. Israel's king was about to lead their army out against a threatening foe, and the people would gather together before that happened to call upon the Lord. But, but I appreciate, again, that this psalm uses the more generic phrase, a day of 
trouble because it means that it's relevant to anyone who's facing what they would describe as a day of trouble. Any situation where you feel that the foes or obstacles are bigger than you can handle, whether, whether those foes are outside of you or inside of you, whether those problems are caused by you or caused by somebody else, a day of trouble. The psalm opens by calling upon God. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. Now, that you is singular. And I, I hate to burst your bubble, but the psalmist is not praying for you individually out there. The psalm is sung by the people, this part of it, and they're singing about their king. That's who they're singing about. May the Lord answer our king in the day of trouble. And in order to properly understand this passage, we have to understand ancient Israel's relationship to their king. The king was very important. The king represented God to the people, and he represented the people to God. If the king was healthy and blessed and wealthy and victorious on the battlefield, the people understood that God was pleased with them. But if the king was unfaithful to God and corrupt and evil, God would bring judgment not only on, on the king, but on the entire nation. See, good, you know, to, to make up a rhyme that kids could remember, good kings brought good things. Bad kings brought bad things to everybody. The king was very important to God and to Israel. That's why Israel desperately wants God to bless him. That's why they would have sung this prayer with urgency and fervency. And they wouldn't be the only ones praying. A good king would be pleading with God for victory as well. And that, that is embedded right in the psalm. May the Lord answer you. That assumes that the king is making requests of God. Or later on in verse 4, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. In the end of verse 5, may the Lord fulfill all your petitions. This assumes that the king is praying and asking for things from God as well. Multiple times here, king and the people ask God for an answer, and the reason they ask God for an answer, this may seem obvious, but it's worth noting, they're only asking him for an answer because they believe that he's listening. Believe that he's listening. Now, do you believe that God is listening to you? Do you believe that when you pray, he hears you? That your prayers are actually the engagement of a real, vital, personal relationship. If not, then why not? Do you think that he would listen to you or answer your prayers if you were a, maybe a better person or you tried harder to be good or if you prayed harder or more consistently or you were a prayer warrior like so-and-so person over there or if you were more articulate and could speak more clearly? Is that what would make God listen to you? Look, here's, I think, it's got to be one of the most heartwarming realities for those who believe, for those who know the God that has made himself known here in Psalm 20. You have God's ear. You have his attention. You don't have to fight for it, clamor for it. God is always ready, always listening to his people. If you called him from jail, he would actually pick up the phone, okay. metaphorically speaking. He is always available for you and for me. 
And that is, that's reason number one, why you should call on him when you're facing an enormous obstacle, because he is actually listening to you. Reason number two, why should you call, why should we call upon the Lord in the day of trouble? Reason number two, because he, he helps us. He helps us. Second half of verse one, another request. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Now, God's name isn't like, uh, I think some Christians have erroneously treated God's name like it's some kind of magic spell that you can invoke uh, to get him to do things for you. And in the Old Testament, really, his name just represented his character and his deeds. A name was very important in the Old Testament. You didn't just name your kids like something that sounded cool. Like you named them something that had something to do with their birth or their life or what you hoped their character would be. And names were very important. And so God's name actually represents who he is and what he's done. In fact, right here, they refer to him as the God of Jacob. So their, their, their minds are going to the past. Jacob was their ancestor, whom they're named after. He was renamed Israel after he wrestled with the angel back in Genesis. So they are just in this short phrase calling God's past deeds to remembrance. God protected Jacob. Oh, I wish I could take you back through our sermons in Genesis. God protected Jacob from many foes, and they're asking God to do that again now. Protect our king, our precious king, from his enemies. And again, feel the urgency here. They understand that the king and the whole nation are in mortal danger. And protect means to be in a high place, a safe and secure place. They're asking God to put their king in a safe place even though he's about to rush right into a battle. To be safe in the midst of danger, that's what they're asking for. And in verse 2, they continue this request. May he, may God, send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. Now, as in many psalms, psalms are poetry. These two lines are parallel. They're, exp they're really expressing the same thought. The sanctuary was the temple in Jerusalem where God dwelled among his people, and Zion referred to the hill that the temple was built upon. And this is meant to, to draw their attention to where, God, where God's presence is located. He's seated in Jerusalem on his throne inside the Holy of Holies. And his presence among them was meant to be a great source of comfort. Why? Why would it be so comforting to remember that God is seated in the midst of his people sending out help? Well, the reason is because God, God is greater than anyone or anything. He's greater than anyone or anything. He has more power at his disposal than anybody. He has more resources at his disposal than anyone. Nobody can stop him when he has decided to do something. Not even a ruthless invading army. That's why the memory of, of where he is seated is so comforting and so helpful. It reminds them of all that God is and all that he has and that he's willing to marshal all of his resources to help them. That's why they call on him for help, because God actually can help in a way nobody else can. And that certainly, that certainly has to factor into why we would call upon God when we're feeling overwhelmed. Look, God can actually help us with the problems that we face in a way nobody else can. I mean, think about this. Think about this. God, 
God can do all kinds of things that nobody can do. God, God can make crops grow. He can control the weather. He's obviously controlling the weather here at Street Fair. It's supposed to be like 105, but instead it's cloudy and raining or something. That's him controlling the weather. He can provide offspring to barren women. He can multiply flocks, or in our economy, money. He can provide jobs and food and clothing and shelter. I mean, that's the kind of help and support that anyone would want. And more than just external things, God can, God can help you with what's going on inside of your heart and your mind. He can get to places that nobody else can in your life. He can protect you from being deceived and teach you the truth. He can comfort you when you're depressed. He can draw near to you when you're lonely. He can bring peace to your mind when you're anxious about your mental health and feel that it's deteriorating. He's the one that can actually lastingly help us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he has the help you really need? Do you believe that God can solve your biggest problems? Even your deepest, most personal problems. Do you believe he's greater than the greatest threats that you face? We prove our faith. We prove that we believe that God can help us every time we call on him when we're in trouble. He's the one that can help us. Why should you call on him? Reason number three. Keep going. Reason number three. Call on him in the day of trouble because he accepts us. He accepts us. Reason number three and verse number three in our passage. Verse number three. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Now, a crucial part of Israel's religious life was their sacrificial system. The animal, grain, and fruit offerings that they burned on the altar outside the temple. And these two lines of Psalm 20 cover the entire sacrificial system. Offerings on the first line is a broad term encompassing all kinds of sacrifices, but burnt sacrifices refers to the whole burnt offering described in Leviticus chapter 1, where every part of the animal was consumed on the altar. It's the only sacrifice for that happens. Now, when God provided the instructions for this offering, here's what he said. He said a person is to make this sacrifice, quote, that he may be accepted before the Lord. And when consumed by the fire, God explained, the sacrifice shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. This assumes that wrongs have been done. Psalm 20 verse 3 is the people simply calling upon God to do what he said he would do in response to their offerings. Forgive them, pardon them, accept them. Now, again, in a military context, a military defeat was often a sign of God's displeasure at Israel's lapses into sin and unfaithfulness. That's why these sacrifices matter right before they went to war. And they're praying this for the king because they want to be reassured that the king's sins were forgiven. That would give them confidence of success on the battlefield. And so they say, accept the king's sacrifices as payment for his sins. That's what they're asking for. Lord, we know that our king isn't perfect. 
He's a politician after all. He's not perfect. We know he's sinned against you in attitude and action. We know his transgressions make him unacceptable to you because you are holy. But please cleanse him and accept him through these sacrifices that you've provided on account of your grace, mercy, and steadfast love. Please don't use this enemy to discipline him and us. All that's behind verse 3. They all want to know that the king is on God's good side, that he's accepted by and acceptable to God, because if he is, then they are too. Remember, their lives are bound up in the king's life. And this touches on a deep need that we all feel, right? We all feel the need to be accepted, sure, by other people, definitely, to be accepted, to have a community, to have people that that will take us on any day, right? But a need to be accepted by and acceptable to God is even deeper. It's why even non-religious people would say things like, I'm a pretty good person. If there is a God and there is a heaven, I'm sure I'll make it. What they're saying is, Based on how I've lived, I must be acceptable to God if he's real. We want to be acceptable to God. We want to know that he approves of us. We want to know that he isn't angry with us, that he isn't poised to strike us down. I mean, what a terrible thing to have to live under. If you believe that a God exists who is powerful and great and greater than you and me and everything else, how terrible to live in a world where you think he's just ready to strike you down. Who would want that? But it's hard to believe that that isn't his posture towards us, isn't it? I mean, think about yourself for a moment. You, you know what you've thought, right? You know what you've done. You know what you've left undone that you shouldn't have. And again, if you believe that God exists, you know that he has a record of it all. How can we know that we are accepted by God? How can we know that we are on his side and he is on ours? What reassurance does God give us that he's not poised to strike us down? Well, these Israelites had their sacrificial system, right? They had an altar and fire and priests and animals and rituals and instructions all all provided and prescribed by God. God wanted Israel to know that there was a way to deal with their sins and their guilty conscience. He didn't want them to live in abject fear of what he might do to them. He doesn't want that for his people. He doesn't want that for us. He doesn't want us to to live as if he might just strike us down at, at any moment in wrath. Now, we could think that because thousands upon thousands of animals were sacrificed in the sacrificial system, that those animals weren't very precious to God. They were expendable to him. But that just isn't true. That isn't true at all. I think about it. God, God made each animal, knitting together every muscle, every molecule, every piece of tissue, ensuring that their brains and bodies worked. When he called for an unblemished, a perfect sacrifice, God was the one that makes sure those things had no blemishes. He was the one that provided them to Israel in the first place. God created them. These animals displayed his glory. They were precious to him. And he gave them to his people to be sacrificed in their place. 
don't think that those animals weren't precious to God. But he has provided a sacrifice for us that is much more precious to him than animals that he's created. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is God's own Son, who he willingly gave, not reluctantly, willingly gave Jesus as the sacrifice for our sins. And one of the reasons that God did that, one of the reasons, is so that we could know that he accepts us. With all of our faults and foibles, with all of our anxieties and weaknesses, with all of our doubts and depression, God accepts us on account of the sacrifice that he provided. His own precious son. If you need to know that you are accepted by and acceptable to God, then you must take hold. You must think on how precious Jesus the Son is to God the Father. He is a precious, precious sacrifice that God gave for you and me. And that gift reveals the heart of the giver. We should call upon him when we're in trouble because we know that we are fully accepted by him as his own precious people because of the sacrifice that he made to cover our sins. We are accepted by him and acceptable to him on account of Jesus. So call on him when you're in trouble. Reason number four, you should call upon God in the day of trouble. is because he rescues us. God rescues us. Verse 5 completes the first set of petitions given by the people in this passage. And verse 5 is really just a request for a victory parade. That's what verse 5 is. May we shout for joy over your salvation. Again, they're talking about the king. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God, set up our banners. In other words, give us victory so we can have a parade. (laughs) They're anticipating that victory in this prayer. This is a faith-filled, confident prayer in verse 5. But the psalm takes a turn in verse 6. And I want you to notice how the language changes. It's no longer us talking about the king. It's now in first person. Verse verse 6 to 8 is the king speaking to the people. When sung, he was probably singing this solo. Verse 6. Now, I know, the king speaking, that the Lord saves his anointed. I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Now, we've seen the word anointed in many psalms. It's the Hebrew word for Messiah, the one appointed by God to save his people. God saves the one who saves his people. The king knows this. 
a faithful king would say to himself, look, if God has raised me up and I remain faithful to him and to his covenant, then, then he will protect me. He will save me so that I can lead his people. And he understands. He says, help me from your holy heaven. Though God is in heaven, the king understands. God controls what happens on earth. He has a strength that nobody can withstand. Like we said earlier, that's the saving might of his right hand, or repeating what the people said earlier. There, there is a strength God possesses that nobody can match. And then we get to this memorable contrast in verse 7. If you weren't familiar with Psalm 20, you may have been familiar with Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Chariots and horses represented the most advanced military technology of the time. They, they could overwhelm an army of foot soldiers, and certainly that's in mind here. But, but there's something else we should notice, a passing reference when we read chariots and horses, a passing reference to a very momentous event in Israel's history, the, the crossing of the Red Sea, when the far superior military might of Egypt, armed with chariots and horses, was pursuing a fleeing nation of slaves who at that time had no army. And God, in one fell swoop, swallowed up the Egyptian army, chariots, horses, and all, with no assistance from anybody else. He saved his people single-handedly from a far superior military. And the point couldn't be clearer. Human might is nothing, nothing compared to God's might. Human capacity is nothing compared to God's capacity. I mean, we could substitute in literally anything to that first line of verse 7, couldn't we? Some trust in nuclear arsenals. Some trust in atomic subs and fighter jets and Sherman tanks. Some trust in political figures and movements. Some trust in money and power. Some trust in relationships and sex. Some trust in career advancement and stability. Some trust in entertainment. Some trust in themselves, their own feelings and perspectives. But, but there's something different about those who know the Lord. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. We recognize that there is nobody and no thing that can do for us what God can do for us. And so, when the odds are stacked against us, we call upon the Lord because He will actually rescue us. He can do it, and He's promised to do it. And He can rescue us in ways that no human being can. He can solve problems that human ingenuity can't even touch. He can frustrate the plans of the most conniving, evil person or nation or terrorist group. Don't trust in anything else to rescue you on the day of trouble. Don't trust in it. What, what is your, what would you substitute in verse 7? What is your some trust in fill in the blank? that you're tempted to trust in. It's probably not chariots or horses. Those aren't really in style anymore. But what would you sub in there? What would you sub in there? Well, look, the pressures of a day of trouble will reveal it. If, you, if you're wondering or you're having a hard time coming up with something, just wait until you're struggling. It's the thing that you will run to. 
the place you go for safety and security when you feel overwhelmed. That's what you trust in. It could be a person. It could be food and drink. It could be something that on the surface is good, like exercise, but you run to it for help. Movies, entertainment, your, yourself, your own ability to think and problem solve and strategize. Some people do trust in those things. But we, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. A different kind of trust altogether. A trust that will not let us down. Trust in the Lord to rescue you when the day of trouble comes. Reason number five, you should call upon the Lord in the day of trouble. Final reason. You should call on the Lord in the day of trouble because He lives for us. He lives for us. Back at the beginning of message, I mentioned that we need to understand the relationship between Israel and their king to fully appreciate this psalm. And that's certainly true here at the end in verse 9. Oh Lord, the petition goes, save the king. Now, I can't confirm, but I would assume that this is where that famous, the famous, you know, British national anthem and the British use the phrase, God save the king, God save the queen. I'm pretty sure they got it from here. Now remember, the Israelites had invested their hopes in this king. I mean, the, the whole nation was fixated on this king. He, his, his well-being represented so much to them. As the king went, so, so went the nation, and they wanted God to bring him back safely from the battle, so that as they say in the last line, that he, the king, may answer us when we call. When you first read this, you may think, may he answer us as God, but it's not. They're saying, may the king answer us when we call. Now, again, if they've invested their hope in a king and that king dies, then their hope dies as well. A dead king can't lead anybody. And if you, if you or I, if we invest our hope in a particular leader and he or she dies, then our hope dies with them. Or perhaps something less than death happens, like a moral failure, or they become ill, or they give up on the cause, have a change of heart or mind. If you lose the leader that you've invested your hope in, it is a crushing blow. A dead leader can help nobody. But this is one of the great joys of being a Christian. Our king, the king who leads us, the king who really is the true king of Israel, isn't dead. Though he died, he is not dead. The answer to the prayer, O Lord, save the king, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, for he is the anointed one pictured here and predicted here. God has saved our king, hasn't he? He has saved our king. He lives forever. He can never die. And since he lives, our hope lives as well and can never die. We can call upon the Lord because we have a living king who reigns over every king. And his victory over sin and death and every enemy, as we've sung about already this morning, that victory is more sure than the sun rising tomorrow morning. And if you and I invest all of our hopes in that king, then our victory is assured as well because we will share in his victory. This king, King Jesus, always answers us when we call. 
May he answer us when we call. Oh, he always answers us when we call because he lives forever and can never die. So, when the day of trouble comes, call upon the Lord because he lives. He lives to lead you and me. It's what he loves to do, to lead us, to love us, to care for us. That's what he does now, and that's what he will always do. Because he lives forever. What is your day of trouble? What are you most afraid might happen to you? What's facing you right now? that feels like it's going to overwhelm you. Look, there's plenty of people in this room. Today may be the day of trouble for some of you. There may be things this afternoon or tomorrow that you are dreading. Is today your day of trouble? But whenever a day of trouble comes, there's always plenty for you to do. There's decisions to make, preparations to make, conversations to have all those are necessary on a day of trouble and you will have to do them but in the midst of the many competing things that will be calling for your attention don't forget don't forget to call upon the Lord in the midst of it all you may not think to that's why this psalm is a gift You may not want to. You may wonder if it'll actually make a difference. What difference could it it make? Ah, But I hope that God has used Psalm 20 to convince you otherwise. Of all the calls you have to make, I I hope that this is the one call that we will all make. May calling upon God be the first thing we do. (laughs) May it be the last thing we do. May calling upon the Lord be something we have a reputation for doing among those who know us. May that call, when we call upon the Lord, bring peace to our hearts, ballast to our souls, to steady us so that we could sing and say like we have, it's well with my soul. That call, that call, calling upon the Lord will make it so that it's well with your soul. On the day of trouble, remember, he's listening to you. He is. He's ready and able to help you. He accepts you. He accepts you through Jesus with all of your flaws and faults. You're fully accepted by him and fully acceptable to him because of what Christ has accomplished for you. He will rescue you from every evil. And he can never die, but always lives to lead you. So, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. Let me pray that he would. Lord, we're promised troubles in this life. Nobody makes it off the planet without many days of trouble. But it is a great comfort to know that there is a God ready, willing, able 
to help us on our day of trouble. So I pray, Lord, that each of us here would have a desire to call upon you, would develop the practice, discipline of calling upon you when things are difficult, would have a reputation for calling upon you, even among those who wonder what on earth prayer to an invisible God could actually do. I pray, Lord, that we would be people who are known for calling upon you. So give us faith, Lord, that you will answer us. Give us the reassurance that you are for us and on our side and you care for us. Build in us again a deep confidence, a deep well of confidence that our prayers move you to act on our behalf, for they do. Help us to believe this and give us a steadiness in our souls, we ask, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.